creative friends. This is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients and artwork in life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. I'm also an illustrator in Austin, Texas, and this episode is entitled Art as a Threshold. Happy New Year! (laughs) How are you doing? How does this find you? We're, what, like nine, eight or nine days into... 2024, um, the energy already feels different to me, which, you know, I can't say every year, um, and it might not feel that way for you. Um, I think everyone's experience moving into a new year is different from year to year. This year, the energy just already feels easier. (laughs) Um, my 2023 was really difficult. I, um, I think because I had some ability to step back, you know, you know, after going through, you know, the more, what is, what is the mighty, the mighty mouse lyric from one of their songs? Um, as life gets longer, awful gets softer, (laughs) you know, like, you know, you go through enough hard times, like when they circle back around, it's less, you know, ideally less, less terrifying, you know, that that's not the case for everybody. You know, not everyone gets to age in that way. But, you know, I think for most of us that intentionally try, that is one of the benefits of getting older. <laughs> so the year was, it was okay, but it was hard. And I'm so ready. Like a friend of mine and I were chatting and he said, can we just kick this year into the sun? And I love that metaphor. <laughs> It can go back from whence it came into the fire. Um, and, and maybe that, you know, that metaphor is also an apt one, I think. Fire is profoundly creative, and we're used to thinking of it as destructive, which it is. But it's also one of the only creative modes that we have in our arsenal when we want to recreate or reshape incredibly hard things like metal right like um if you want to soften metal that's one of the only ways you have (laughs) and if the metal is you if you have calcified around certain things um the only the only mode to reshape that is to sit in the fire a little bit that was how my year felt I don't know um, I only share that as context for you um, I, I have a lot of friends who had similar years also some friends that had easier years it's just it depends I think um, but I wanted to start the new year off with art as a threshold um, and I was inspired to talk about this with you because one of my favorite podcasts Tarot for the Wild Soul, the creator Lindsay Mack offers an she she has an offering every new year called the Threshold Offering and talks a lot about thresholds in that offering, of course. <laughs> and I'm I'm gonna talk about thresholds in a very different way from her, but you know, because some of her ideas were foundational to the way that I apply this to my art art making, I wanted to you know, 
name that for you, especially because I feel fairly certain that most people who enjoy this podcast would enjoy her podcast. It was first introduced to me by another artist and the way that she introduced it to me is how I want to introduce it to you now. She said, even if you don't have a tarot practice, even if you don't have a tarot deck, even if you have no interest in tarot, I think you're going to love this podcast. And she was right. Um, you know, there was a lot of it in the beginning that just went over my head. You know, like any of the geeky tarot stuff. And she's geeky. Like she is a deep diver into tarot. Like she's talking to people that love tarot. Um, and a lot and all of that went over my head. But she is a beautiful channeler. She has so much wisdom and insight into using numerology and astrology and tarot to talk about each month, each year, where we're at collectively and personally, I get so much out of listening to her even even before I, I had a tarot practice. And then, you know, because I listened to her podcasts for a long time, I eventually got a deck and have gotten into pulling cards. But I think that even if that's not in your repertoire, um, you might want to consider checking her podcast out if you enjoy this one. Um, and when she talks about thresholds, if you decide to take her offering on threshold thresholds for 2024, or if you listen to her talk about thresholds in her podcast, she talks about thresholds um, in the lived experience, which for the most part are one directional, which is why thresholds in our lives can be intense, you know, um, and and she her definition of it is the passing over from one space to another. Um, there's of course the literal thresholds that we cross in our homes and in our workplaces and in um, stores. You know every day, right? Contractors are constantly creating these little strips of metal or wood <laughs> that delineate the space in a door frame between the outside and inside of a building. That's a literal threshold. But Lindsay talks a lot about life thresholds, having children, um, losing a loved one who passes away when we inevitably are going to pass away, um, starting a new job, moving across the country, moving to a different space in your same town, um, ending relationships, beginning relationships. All of these are really huge thresholds that we cross in our lifetime and they are one directional and that's it's kind of like how they say you can never go home like yes I could enter into a relationship and then exit the relationship but I'll never exit the relationship into the same space I was in prior to it you know thresholds are powerful and intense because they're forever, <laughs> at least in this linear experience that we're having in these bodies, right? Um, I, you know, I know that really life is spiral and messy and, you know, all over the place, but we experience life as a line. And that means that thresholds often feel like a line, like that there's an experience, there's a part of our experience that we're not going to reenter again. And it's one of the reasons why our culture's inability to honor and support its human beings <laughs> through the thresholds is pretty tragic. Um, anyone who's been through a really intense transition, through an intense threshold in their life, 
can probably speak to how unsupported they felt during that time. You know, like there's a sense that most modern people are just trying to move through thresholds as quickly as possible with as few problems as possible. And they often end up kind of mucking through the grief and stress and feelings of that experience often alone or just sort of haphazardly. I I know that that experience was really true for me as a, a new mother. I waited a long time to have children because my experience around having a family was, at least from my vantage point, pretty different from most of my friends and family. And I've learned as I've gotten older that there's many more people that have a similar perspective to me than I realized. But, you know, when I was younger, especially, I, I really just felt surrounded by lots of women and and men who were very excited to have families and to get married and I would you know I always felt pretty skeptical about that excitement and then you know subsequently watched a lot of my really excited friends get married and have kids and sort of plunge into that despair <laughs> and you know lose themselves and lose their lives and you know, get depressed and stressed all the time. And, and it was because, you know, from my vantage point, there wasn't the support for them that is, is really necessary. Um, and so I waited a long time and, and then ultimately ended up having this pretty pronounced success in my art business, you know, more than I think I expected to have, if I'm being honest with you. Um, and, you know, by the end of 2019, 2020, 2021, I was working with clients I, you know, had only dreamed about working with and on projects that meant more to me than I ever imagined I would get to work on. And so, and then the pandemic happened and the combination of those things just really shifted Jason and I, and I really started to feel like I was ready for the threshold of mothering and being a being a mother, being a parent. And even still, as someone who was really ready and spent a lot of time deeply reflecting on how I was going to move through that threshold in a meaningful way and how I was going to surround myself with support to the extent that I could, even still it was it was like running into a clothesline. <laughs> And, and having my feet just fly up into the air and laying on my back and wondering what happened, you know, and, it, and I'm, sh- I'm sure there's lots of reasons why thresholds are so challenging, you know, not just being a parent, but, but any threshold crossing is challenging. I think one of the ones that has been most noticeable to me as a, a new mom is that threshold rituals are are meant to be I think very tribal you know we're all all of our ancestors you know our earliest ancestors were tribal and moving across the threshold for example from being an individual or being a couple into now having a child and being a family is massive it's not just like the surface level stuff that's changing. You know, it's not just the learning how to feed and clothe and bathe and keep this human alive. Like that's like the basic bare minimum. Like 
below the surface is all of these internal shifts that are happening with you and your partner and this child. And that it, it's so massive that it requires the hands of a tribe, you know, and that's why historically, you know, in, in the earliest days, children were raised by 30 to 75 people. Um, and this is something that a lot of anthropologists talk about, like that we're biologically wired to live in groups of 30 to 75 people and have support from those people, direct support in our day-to-day lives. Now, I'm, it m- might sound like I'm slamming on modern culture. And, you know, I, I guess I don't mean to because modern culture in some ways, emerged because of the drawbacks of tribal culture. You know, tribal culture is beautiful and supportive if you happen to be born into a really healthy tribe. But if you were born into a toxic tribe in which you didn't fit, your options were limited. (laughs) Talk to any LGBTQ plus person who was born in a small town and, you know, and absolutely didn't feel safe day to day, you know, like, Modern culture is really beneficial for someone like them because presumably with enough wherewithal, they can leave their tribe and find another one somewhere else that does support them. But one of the downsides of modernism is that we're really fractured from one another. And so when we move through these huge transitions, we don't have support. We don't have the amount of support Um, certainly I can call a friend on the phone and talk to them. Certainly I can, um, organize, you know, group coffees with girlfriends and things like that. It's not the same as living in close proximity with dozens and dozens of multi-generational people who my child can run to throughout the day. It's just, it's totally different. And I suspect maybe as we move forward, you know, in generations from now, maybe we'll figure out how to cherry pick the best of those systems. Um, but you know, for now we kind of have what we have. And so I, I share that because I feel like what we just, what I just shared is sort of the classical interpretations of thresholds and we're in a threshold right now. It's a new year. It's the perfect time to talk about this. I wanted to talk about sort of the more, not normal, but the more traditional definitions of thresholds, I wanted to talk about the ways that they're still not honored in the way that they should be as a preface to talking about art as a threshold, because art as a threshold is something that I don't hear talked about very often at all. Um, There are some really cool artists who talk about this, however, and I'm going to leave some links in the show notes for places that you can listen to folks talking about this um, or read or whatever. But generally the topic of art as a threshold is, I I don't even want to say taboo because taboo indicates that it's in the zeitgeist to begin with and is, you know, to a certain extent rejected. And that, I, I don't even think it's in the zeitgeist very much at all and so therefore therefore can't be taboo yet but but I feel like it's so important it's so important in my creative life it has shaped my art business and my art life so profoundly it is 
the seed <laughs> in many ways. Art as a threshold is like the initial seed of all of my artwork up until up in the last decade or so. And I think that this year is an exceptional time for a lot of artists to start thinking about art as a threshold in a more conscious way. You know, before I record episodes for y'all, I usually try to think of an agenda um, in which to shape my recording around. Um, I actually, once, once earlier this last past year, someone asked me if I wing these recordings and the answer is mostly yes. <laughs> um, you know, not everyone's going to come on board with the idea of channeling or downloads but for me, that is the closest way to describe these episodes to you. You know, I think a lot of podcasters have an agenda and have plans that are pretty specific, and then they, you know, have a script and they move through it. Um, for me, it's kind of like this is the thing. Let's just go and see what happens. <laughs> but I've found that um, one important pre-step to record to winging the recording process is to having some type of agenda in which to shape my conversation around so that y'all feel like we're on an intentional walk together, that we're not just like roaming around aimlessly, which I can easily do. <laughs> I think a lot of artists can relate to that. And I, I realized pretty early on when I was getting my ideas in a row for recording this topic about this topic is that I don't have an agenda and that's actually important in this episode there I don't think yeah I just want to say this out the gate before I start talking about art as a threshold I don't think that after this episode is over you need to necessarily do a single thing with the content herein um, maybe you will you know maybe you'll have some ideas of how this fits really well into the place that you're at artistically, the place that you're at in your life, if you don't necessarily identify as a classically trained artist, the places that you're at in your relationships or your work, like maybe there will be some really interesting insights that connect to your day-to-day -day experience, but maybe there won't be. And I think that's also very valid. My agenda, if I have one at all with this episode, moving into 2024, is simply a, a seed, as I mentioned earlier. Like the, and you don't have to do anything with the seed because seeds do their own work. And you are the soil, you're the fertile space. It will, you know, my experience with art as a threshold was that as soon as the seed was noticeable to me, it just figured its own growth out. Over the last decade, art as a threshold has become... A forest for me without my having to consciously work at it and in fact I think it's almost better that I didn't consciously work at it and that probably feels a little cryptic right now so let's unpack why like let's unpack why art as a threshold is best left to its own devices what art as a threshold even is because we haven't even talked about that yet and why it's so cool to talk about art as a threshold in in this new year. So the reason that I even thought to talk about this um, to begin with was because the seed 
of which I've been referring to here a little bit, was first in some ways unintentionally gifted to me in 2011 by one of my professors in grad school at the University of Texas here in Austin in his management in the arts class. His name um, was Dr. Christopher Adejumo. He was Nigerian. He was he was brilliant. And I say was because um, we learned last month that he unexpectedly passed away. And finding that out really brought a lot of that time in his class to the forefront of my mind. And it really reminded me how much that time was the very beginnings of art as a threshold in my working life. And and so I want to tell you that story because I do think that even though the story is personal to my own work and, and life, it's also very relevant to anyone, whether they identify as an artist in the classical sense, as I mentioned earlier, or just passionate about being an artist in their life and in their thinking and in their relationships and and all of that goodness. So... When I think of Dr. Adejumo, and I think most of my student colleagues would agree with me here, he's an unlikely professor hero. He's an unlikely professor. Um, You know, he was an unlikely professor to gift such a magnanimous magnanimous gift. (laughs) He um, He was kind of known as a lazy professor. Um, and not for lack of intelligence. He was um, incredibly brilliant. He was very, um, he was a very beautiful lecturer. He chose his words very intentionally and articulately. Listening to him speak was always just steeped in wisdom. He had a lot to say. He was clearly very passionate about his own writing, his own research. And because he had to teach, you know, he kind of, he kind of just scraped that together (laughs) you know and he UT is a research one school right so for those of you that are in academia you kind of are familiar but um research one schools you know the the dominant thing they're expected to do is write and publish and research and then teaching is just like the other thing for many of them and I because I was in an art education program which was full of professors who were passionate about teaching you know I got to have for the most part teachers who loved to teach and who were there to really support students in meaningful ways you know Dr. Adajima wasn't one of those teachers um his office hours were mostly just because he had to you know he pretty regularly didn't respond to emails unless they were like connected to your thesis or something like very emergency like and um and I remember you know in this management in the arts class on the first day he kind of sits us all down and he says okay you know so 25% of your grade is going to be some evaluations based on the readings um, but three quarters of your grade is going to be this semester long art project and and I have to say like in spite <laughs> in spite of like the crazy disproportionate like <laughs> 
um, percentages here. Like he, his idea was, I think, you know, founded. He, he had observed in a lot of his students who were interested in going in art business or art management or working in arts organizations. He noticed that almost all of them immediately fell off from having any type of personal art making practice. And he felt strongly that it was very important for anyone working in any type of art management, art business role to continue to in a robust way, make things. And so he said, you know, we're going to be reading a lot about business, reading a lot about development, but I want you to, while we're doing that, I want you to be making art every day. And it could be whatever you want. um, And you'll present on it to your peers at the end of the class. That'll be three quarters of your grade. And I, (laughs) and that was it. And I remember all of us kind of looking at each other after this class was over and having the sense, which ended up being true, (laughs) that we could literally show up with anything at the end of this semester and he would give us an A. And and that was true. <laughs> but, and normally this, y'all, normally this wouldn't have worked for me. I, I think most of us think we want creative freedom. And, and I talked about this in the, I think it was the last episode actually, you know, that limitations can can and almost always are the gateways to profound radical creative work and but I think we think we need freedom and I suspect he was trying to give us a lot of freedom too Um, but freedom is usually very paralyzing I noticed it for my students too even when they were five to nine years old (laughs) like that giving them a container in which they had to work um, ironically allowed them to be more creative And less container ended up leading to fewer creative outcomes, you know? And normally that would have been my experience. It's one of the reasons why I choose to work with clients. Um, Because, and I've had so many people ask me this question, you know, why why is it that you chose to work for yourself and then immediately started working for someone else, you know? (laughs) Like, wouldn't it be more fun for you to do your own art shows, make your own work only? And a lot of artists, that's why they choose to work for themselves. Um, I'm not one of those artists. I love having the container of someone else's expectations. And yes, I do still make my own work and sell it in gallery here in Austin. And and I have some retail products that sell nationally. But I love having the crux of my work being with other people who create limitations around what I can do. I thrive in that environment. (laughs) And But for whatever reason this, this assignment came into my life at a very important time. And it was at a time in my life where I was tapped out on limitations. And this is something that everyone can relate to, whether it's in a creative setting or not. You know, from the moment we're born, there are family forces at play, friend forces at play, institutional forces at play, whether it's school or religion, healthcare, whatever, that are telling young children how to be in the world. (laughs) And I had been steeped in those forces for a really long time by the time I got to grad school. You know, prior to grad school, I had been working in a public school environment. Um, 
most public school teachers will tell you that it is very hard. It is very hard to implement any creative ideas. Um, you are just trying to like scrape through your day. <laughs> like it is, you know, most public school teachers are doing the job of three people. Um, not sleeping, like working at home, working on weekends, like just try to do the bare minimum, you know, like implementing real systemic change in a public school environment is very difficult. Being creative in a public school environment is very difficult. And some teachers might disagree with me, um, but I think a lot of them can relate to how hard it is to create big systemic change in this public school environment. Like sure, like, you know, doing like cool little creative projects here and there is is very doable, but like really changing the way kids learn is not easily happening in that environment. And I had been steeped in that for five years prior to that. I was in a really rigorous art, undergrad art program at the at Kent State in Ohio. I was spending all of my time um, working within the confines of what was considered classically important in making art and teaching art and reproducing, <laughs> you know, the type of work that my professors were indicating was important at that time. Prior to that, I was in a high school program that was all about building a portfolio that was, you know, meant to get me into an art college, right? So figure drawing, still life drawing, value, contour line, like you know, all of the foundational principles and elements of design work that goes into a college art portfolio, you know, prior to that, I was in junior high, learning the very beginnings of principles and elements. Like I remember junior high was when I realized I wasn't in Kansas anymore. Like it's not about making dragons and fairies and princess dresses anymore. (laughs) This is, you know, if you're in an art class in junior high or, or later, you're a skill building now. So really the last time that I had made art in a way that was truly fueled by only what I wanted to do was in grade school. And here I had this professor kind of giving me permission to do that. And I didn't realize it at the time, but he was probably one of the only people that was going to successfully give me that permission. And I think, and and even though I didn't realize it now, I can say in hindsight that the biggest reason was this. Most of the forces in play from junior high to grad school in, in my artistic career were really, you know, based and rooted in you know, late stage capitalism, <laughs> like market economies, like, you know, all of the the things that children are being told is important in in art programming in general is rooted in a market economy, is rooted in a production line mentality. Is this thing going to be valuable in an economy? Is this thing going to get you employed? Is this thing going to make you money? Is this thing going to make someone else money, right? Like all of the, all of the stuff I was learning was connected to those goals, And this is programming that all of us have kind of gone through, whether it's in art making or not, right? And it's intentional, right? Like it's an intentional fracture. It's an intentional disconnection between what we come into the world wanting to make, (laughs) um, 
you know, sort of for our souls, <laughs> you know, and it, maybe that sounds a little bit woo woo, but I don't mean it to be like we deep, we have deep motivations that are in our hearts and souls and spirits as children, no matter what it is that we want to do as kids. And, and then there's this, this consistently systemically applied programming from a very young age that says those things are nice and not now, <laughs> right? Like I, and so I, you know, that those types of messages come in all kinds of forms, but you know, one of the ways that it really showed up for me as an, as an artist was, yeah, I know you want to draw dragons and fairies and cartoons and mystical doodles, pages and pages of whimsical doodles. Um, not now, you know, and I, I would be remiss to say that my art teachers were wrong, you know, because I became an art teacher later and I understand the wisdom in asking students to expand outside of their comfort zone. I understand the wisdom in intentional, disciplined practice of principles and elements. Those things greatly inform my art making. They're very important. You know, it wasn't so much the request that I expand into these more traditional territories. It was the energy which which was entirely dismissive of any of my goals as an artist. My goals became irrelevant, right? And so quickly I set all of my goals aside. And I did it for so long that even by the time I was an art teacher in my 20s, I was having an exceptionally hard time sitting down and making anything for myself anymore because it wasn't capitalistically driven. Like I, it felt like a waste of my time to have a sketchbook and do what I wanted to do. It felt like there was so much, so much more I should be doing with my time. And I knew how toxic that energy and that idea was, and I couldn't will myself out of it. The programming was intense. (laughs) And that's why I believe that Dr. Adajuma was one of the only people that was going to permission me out of that because he was in many ways a, a, a capitalistic face, right? Like he was a doctor at a research one school who was published and, and you know, he was, he was the face of everything that was considered respectable and formal in the art world and he was saying I want you to do what you want to do you know I don't think if I had been taking like a workshop at like some small art school in Austin by like some working artist out of their home you know I don't know if and and I know that like that sounds kind of shitty like if I'm being honest (laughs) I don't I don't mean to use such a crass word but maybe it's important to use a crass word there that that is an egoic assumption and and also a true one for me at that time and i think a true one for a lot of people i don't know if someone like that would have been able to permission me out of that space out of that programming in the way that he could i had gotten into this really prestigious prestigious program um i had gotten in without being waitlisted i um was so proud of my Um, chance to be at University of Texas in a master's environment. I was getting to write a thesis on something I cared about. 
And here was one of the founders of that program saying, you can do what you want now. And it was the perfect time in my life to hear that. And so I went home that night and I, all I had in my art toolkit was a bunch of pens, micron black ink pens and a bunch of inking paper. I loved those two drawing, drawing components. I, they were my tools of choice when I was a little kid. And I said, okay, he, want, he says we could do what we want. The last time I got to do what I wanted was in grade school, doodling, and I'm going to doodle every night. And I made an agreement with myself at that time that I would doodle every night before bed, no matter, no matter what, even if I was exhausted, even if it was only for five minutes. And it was, it was life-changing. It was life-changing in a way that it couldn't have been at any other time, you know? Like there, w- there was a moment while I was a school teacher in Ohio that I tried to do a similar thing and I couldn't. It was the wrong space. It was the wrong time. But, but in, as a grad student, I found myself, you know, sp- speeding home on my bike from a long day of researching, writing, waiting tables, and just plunging into bed with my pens. And I would stay up for hours until one, two, three in the morning drawing doodles like just shapes and just shapes and lines and it was me 100% reconnecting with my childhood reasons for making stuff it was the type of drawing that I could do without a single person watching me without a single person telling me what to do without a grade involved and without any attachment to the product either. Like, I really didn't care if it looked like shit. I mean, that that was huge for me. I was 30 years old <laughs> by this point. Up, in, up until, you know, this class, I had been operating under a deeply product-driven mentality, which was this has to look in an X, Y, and Z way for X, Y, and Z person. And suddenly I was drawing every night in a way that didn't I didn't if it looked terrible it didn't matter because I felt so good like the physical action of making these marks was so deeply regulating and calming that 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 was the artwork for me The, the rest of it didn't matter and I was literally given being given permission to do this radical thing for a grade it was luxurious I can't even describe to you how profoundly important this project was and it was the seed for Art as a Threshold, even though I didn't realize it at the time. And, and I suppose this is how Art as a Threshold began here. So I was about a month into this semester making these drawings, and I started to have this very real experience that something supernatural was happening when I would draw this way. And I, had, and I realized that this was, this was an energy that had been very present in my young life as well, but I was so connected to the energy that I didn't notice it, right? And then, of course, had been educated out of drawing that way for a really long time. And when I returned to drawing that way, the supernatural mystical component was very noticeable. It was like there was something else in the room. And 
this was the very, very, very beginning of making art with something bigger. And I, and the reason I've talked a lot about why I chose making art with something bigger instead of making art with spirit or making art with God or whatever. Um, I don't actually have any idea what that thing was. And my resistance to name it is an important part of that experience. Like it, to me, it didn't matter. It was just very much a sentient, conscious, deeply wise thing that I really missed. Like it felt like I was getting reacquainted with an old friend who had never left. And the ancient Greeks and Romans, you know, really were tapped into this idea. You know, they really believed that artists were not the source of of their artworks. They and they called they called these beings daemons or geniuses that that artists were connected to this other thing that was bigger and the works that they were making were a co-collaboration in some ways, but even more than that, it was, it was more like they were the pathway. Like the artwork was actually coming from their daemon, coming from their genius. And to the extent that they could be clear enough, <laughs> they could bring that information through them and out of their hands. They were the vessel for the work only, <laughs> not the source of it. And I was really starting to have this experience. I later listened to Elizabeth Gilbert talk about some of these ideas in her famous TED Talk, and she also elaborates them elaborates on them in her book, Big Magic, which I'll leave links for in the show notes. But I, I had never, you know, as an adult, this was the first time that I was really aware of this other thing, and it felt like a homecoming. It felt like I was getting something back that not only I deeply wanted but actually needed and had some grief around. There was a period where I really grieved all of the years that I had been drawing without this thing in my life. And it was at that time that I started to view the artwork as the line in the doorway between me and this thing you know that I wasn't you know in this human experience I wasn't gonna get to go cross over into that room and sit down with that thing and have some tea you know I suspect maybe one day when I leave this earth I will again but for now that threshold is it's permanent (laughs) and I do think that some of the more mystical and meaningful works that are coming out of creative industries and creative individuals right now are showing people myriad ways of accessing this threshold, whether they call it something bigger or not, you know, um, meditation, yoga, um, holistic healthcare, um, to name a few, right? Like there's just so many ways to access this thing that is bigger. And, but one of the ways that I so rarely hear talked about is art. Art is the line in the doorway. It is the space between me and this thing that we both get to touch. And I was regularly like leaving these drawings on my bedside table and they were steeped 
and guidance and wisdom that was clearly from the depths of me and something else. Things that I deeply needed to know. Coming out of these random marks, it was it was a gorgeous time. So, you know, like this, and, and this in a very practical way also ended up being the seed for Becca Borelli illustrations. I had like 40 or 50 illustrations, <laughs> these little doodles. They, they were, y'all, little doodles. <laughs> um, after this class was over and I didn't know what to do with them, I didn't want to throw them away, but I certainly didn't have a place for them. And so I just threw them all up on a website with PayPal buttons for 25 bucks and, and sold most of them. And, and that website continued to very slowly, very organically morph over the next decade into, you know, a pretty robust illustration business where, you know, I'm now working with Facebook and Visa and Dell and all these things that I, I never, I never imagined. And I, I honestly don't think for me personally, I would have ever gotten to work with some of those entities and organizations if it wasn't for this initial seed of treating art as a threshold. Because to me, that's the X factor of my work. And I think increasingly going forward, artists who embrace this relationship as as their art is a threshold to something bigger, I think that it can be a unique X factor for many other creators as well. You know, I'm not talking about replicating my exact modality here. I'm talking about what is your modality and how is it letting you access something bigger? So, so I, I was, you know, very into this idea. It also kind of sat with me, as I mentioned earlier, germinating on its own for a long time. And then one day in 2018, I was teaching a class at Laguna Gloria in Austin. And I'm actually going to leave the link for this in the show notes as well, because I'm teaching my first class in two years at Laguna Gloria this coming weekend. So for any of my local friends who are immediately like perking up and potentially interested in doing art making this weekend with me, check it out because there are a few spaces left. I just sent off the introductory email this morning. Um, and I, so I was doing a, a similar art making um, workshop at Laguna Gloria six years ago. And it was very much, you know, beginning without the end in mind, right? We were doing spontaneous mark making, spontaneous image selection, um, lots of messy things, lots of intuitive things. And it's, it was uncomfortable, you know, for a lot of folks, it's very uncomfortable to make things in this very open-ended way. The, the way that we made stuff as kids, right? Because we are educated out of it. It's, it's like, well, I want to make this thing beautiful. I want to make this thing good. Like all of those agendas are just so powerful. And, and, you know, just like any muscle, it takes some time to relax into some of the original ways that we made things as children. And I think it's very important. It's one of the foundations of my teaching. So there was this woman in the class who had done this piece. So she had started with some charcoal and it was very black and she kind of shaded this gradient 
of black fading into white with like all these grays in between on the foundation of her piece. And then she had been looking for some images and magazines to super, to superimpose and juxtapose on, on top of this charcoal background. And she ended up finding this photo of a woman. I think it was in like a perfume ad or something. And she was interestingly in a dark room, stepping into a lighter space. And she had this flowing dress on and her hair was blowing backwards. And the student was like, Oh, wow, this, you know, in the beginning it was a choice based totally on principles and elements. She said, the background of this perfume ad is identical to the background of my charcoal piece. So I'm going to, I'm going to use this. And she cuts it out and she uses some adhesive to put it on her piece. And she's adding some marks to it and, and simultaneously working on a few other pieces at the same time. Cause you know, often in my classes, we're working on multiple things at one time. And she, she pulls me aside and she, she and I are like kind of reflecting on this piece. And she said, you know, I have to tell you, she goes, it makes me feel a little weird, but if you don't mind, I kind of want to tell you the story. She said, I, I really feel like this artwork is trying to tell me something. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, artworks tell me stuff all the time too. And she said, well, yeah, but like, she said, you know, I haven't shared this with the class, but I, you know, just recently finalized a pretty long and messy divorce. She said it, you know, my husband and I, my ex-husband and I didn't have a lot of shared agreements on how the separation was going to happen. It's taken years. She said, I'm finally free of it. And I, you know, this taking this class is one of the reasons that, you know, it's one of the things I wanted to do to kind of enter this new space in my life where things are different. And she said, but you know, there's a lot of grief and a lot of pain. And I honestly feel just pretty raked over the coals. <laughs> and you know, I'm paraphrasing. This is generally her story. And she, she says, I, I kind of, I kind of think that this woman in this artwork is supposed to be me. She said, cause I very much am in this exact space in my life. You know, like I was in this like very heavy, dark place, but I, I really think I'm stepping into a lighter, more expansive place. And she said, I didn't intend to do that. Like that wasn't an intention when I was making this artwork. And I have to tell you, it's really helping me right now. And I went home that night and I was thinking a lot about this exchange with her. And one of the things that I want to share with you about her story, but also about the way that art does this for all of us, if we, if we engage with art in this way, is that it can become a source of comfort that is profoundly, profoundly trustworthy. And when I say profoundly trustworthy, this is what I mean. I suspect, you know, and I'm just projecting now, I don't know this for sure, but I suspect more likely than not, there were lots of people in this woman's life, her friends, her family, those who loved her and cared for her, who were watching her go through this really painful divorce experience, who told her, this is temporary, it's hard right now, but you're going to be free later, you're going to, it's going to get better later, you know, all of, and and can't, can't any of us listening to this relate to some version of that? Like maybe we haven't been through a divorce, but we've been, all of us who have lived long enough to listen to a podcast like this have had really hard stuff happen to us. It's part of the human game, you know? And when we move through really hard times, 
those who love us really want us really want us to feel their support. And one of the ways that I think all of us, myself included, have tried to offer support is by offering perspective that is so difficult to access when we're in the thick of it. And can we all agree that that support can sometimes feel untrustworthy? Like, of course, of course you would tell me it's going to be better later, but what if you're wrong? And maybe we know that that voice is suspicious and maybe we know that that voice is wrong but that voice is often there like of course you're going to tell me it's better you're my friend of course you're going to tell me it's going to be okay later you're my family member like you love me you want you want to tell me good things right now but I'm in the shits and maybe it will never be better what like that's one of our deepest fears I think when we're moving through big contraction in our lives when we're moving through big contraction in our art making what if this is the best? Like, what if it never ends? It's an irrational fear and a really real one. And so when we get that feedback from the people that we care about, it can feel helpful in some ways, but also like, I think at least me personally, I meet it with some skepticism. And there's only so much comfort that that type of support offers from people that care about me. When wisdom and guidance comes through artwork that I've made like that, when wisdom and guidance comes through artwork that feels very much connected to something bigger and something otherworldly, there is something about it that is so much more trustworthy because there's not that agenda there that that is attached to our loved ones, right? Our loved ones have an agenda. They have an agenda to help us and at any cost, at, you know, even if it's being a little hyperbolic or a little bit dramatic in their languaging, you know, but this thing, this thing that's bigger, this thing that's bigger, that's attached to our deepest subconscious self doesn't have that agenda. It can't, it's just not even part of the equation. And so there's something really pure about making something organically that we, that, that emerged organically that we didn't intend to make and then it provides this deep comfort and connection to our lived experience like this. And her example is like very literal, you know, like not all the students in my class had that narrative arc <laughs> in their art making, but all of them, when, you know, we were done at the end of the course and we were spreading all of our works out and talking about them, all of them had these wildly interesting emergent narratives coming forth that were unexpected and deeply relevant to their lived experience. And that is nothing short of magical. It is art as a threshold in action. And the thing, <laughs> the thing that makes art as a threshold to me so cool and so important to the cultural narrative right now, especially you know, as we talked about thresholds at the beginning of this episode, you know, being kind of one directional, art as a threshold is multidirectional. That thing is always there and I can access it at any time through my art making if I choose to and it can access me. It is a total democratization of the threshold process. Like, 
It's a democratization of the ac- of access points with this thing that's bigger. I don't need to go to a guru to access this thing that's bigger anymore. I can sit down to my sketchbook every morning for five minutes and doodle and touch base with that thing. And maybe some days will be much more noticeably profound and other days I'll feel like I'm barely touching that thing at all. But I can do it at my sketchbook for free on my own time whenever I want. I don't need to spend money on the program. I don't need to spend money on the self-help books. I, I could and I, and of course, you know, we all do those things. There's so many people that serve and support us through capitalistic avenues. You know, of course, there's nothing wrong with that, but there is something profoundly beautiful about having access at your own kitchen table every day if you choose it through the things that you make. And so, and maybe the disclaimer is important at this point to also say that it was through this experience of my own doodling in grad school and then subsequently working with students later that I realized that this type of art making, art as a threshold, is not always helpful. Um, I've talked about this in other podcast episodes, so I'm only going to touch upon it quickly now, but I learned this lesson in, in, the, in the hard way uh, when I became a sign painter for a few years at Trader Joe's after grad school. It was my initiation into commercial art making. <laughs> and, you know, I only really, you know, I had, I had reacquainted myself with art as a threshold. I had reacquainted myself with making art um, in collaboration with this thing that was bigger. And I had unintentionally, or even, or I would maybe not unintentionally, but unconsciously made an agreement that I was not going to let go of that ever again. You know, I had lost it for a few decades and I never, ever wanted to lose it again. And so then, of course, I come into this grocery store environment and I'm doing chalkboard signs of corn chips and trying to, you know, touch in with this spiritual component (laughs) and having no success, y'all. And one day, you know, my boss coming back there and kind of looking me up and down and I've mentioned this in the past, but he probably should have been a creative director. He was so good working with artists. And I remember him looking at me and saying, Borelli, it's corn chips. Like, it's just, you know, no one's going to be scrutinizing this. They just need to know what the price is with bright colors. Like, go at it, you know? That that energy is also incredibly valid, (laughs) y'all. The commercial capitalistic component the principles and elements component of art making fits in that environment right like that there's certain strokes for certain folks and knowing the differences is important and there are times now when I'm working with clients where I I am tapping in with something bigger and it's one of the reasons I think that I've I believe that I've gotten to work with some pretty cool people because, and, and, and maybe this will sound like I'm slamming on myself, but I truly am not when I say I am not the best drawer in the room, not even close. Like I, from a principles and elements perspective, am constantly, <laughs> you know, mucking it up. Um, I, I really am. It, I, I do think that one of my selling points is that there is a sense when people interact with my work that they're getting to touch in with something a little bit mystical. And 
So I do intentionally access that thing when I'm drawing, but I also know when it's time to ignore it, right? When the client just really wants to use blue, (laughs) when the client just really wants these shapes in there, right? Like then it's time to be commercial, you know, that both and are possible together, both and are important together, that these things don't have to be in diametrical opposition to one another. The problem isn't the both and, the problem is when it's just the one. And often it's just the commercial one. Often it's just the capitalistically motivated one that gets a voice in a lot of artists' practices. You know, how many, how comfortable would you be talking about interacting with mystical energies at a happy hour, right? Like people really generally aren't interested in hearing about that part of my process. It's it's not impressive. <laughs> um, at least historically, it hasn't been, you know, when friends of mine, like recently, some friends of mine came to Austin from Ohio and they, we met at the Mueller farmer's market in East Austin. And, um, he, my friend from Ohio works for Progressive Insurance, which is also located here in Austin. So he has some coworkers that live here and he invited them to meet us as well. And when he introduced me, this was how he introduced me. He said, this is my friend, Becca. She's an artist in Austin. She actually recently did the, mu- the mural in the entranceway to Dell Children's Hospital. And immediately the faces of these people lit up right? Like in a way that would have decidedly not happened if my friend had just said, she's an artist in Austin. Or if my friend had said, this is my friend who's an artist in Austin. She channels energies from the other side, right? Like nobody, (laughs) like we live in late stage capitalism. (laughs) Like, and I feel like I'm throwing that term around a little bit casually, but, um, you know, this episode isn't about that. It's just, it's just part of the context in which we live in that's important to acknowledge. Like it deeply shapes what we value when people hear a corporate organization that they're very familiar with in Austin, there's immediately some value attached to that. Like it, and so there's, there's nothing wrong with that. The the problem is is that often then that becomes the only thing, right? Art isn't a threshold anymore. Art is an object that is beautiful. Art is an object that makes money. Art is an object to be appreciated by other people. Art is an object to be measured on a metric or a value system that is not our own. All of those things matter, and become toxic when they're the only thing that matters. And reintroducing myself to art as a threshold was profoundly meaningful in my life. It was the thing that became different. It was the thing that made me feel different. And it was the thing that made me feel authentic in my capacity to move forward in business. You know, I don't know if I would have been able to enter our business otherwise. I think it would have hurt my soul too much. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. I think a lot of people 
feel like the world of work in which they engage in, whether it's art or otherwise right now, is a little soul crushing. And I would like to suggest that one of the reasons is that it's not a threshold experience, that you don't, that the things that you're making aren't bringing you in contact with something bigger than yourself. And I know as I talk about this, that there's some crunchiness around that too. There certainly was for me for a really long time. I, I, I realized that for me, the extent of the crunchiness at least was to the extent in which I felt like I had to learn to do this thing. Like that art as a threshold was something I had to learn to do. Um, from that place, it feels confusing and annoying and weird, for sure. When I relaxed into the the knowing that art as a threshold is a remembering process, it became simple and easy again, um, or maybe more simple and more easy. <laughs> Certainly, you know, I don't mean to suggest like wham bam, thank you, ma'am, but. We all have engaged with creative making as children this way. This, all of us, we're born this way. We're born to make things in co-collaboration with something bigger. This is just what I believe you may have a different opinion here. Um, but based on my experience working with children as a teacher, working with adults as a teacher, working with clients in all different kinds of settings... I can tell you that I really strongly believe that the initial reason that we make things as children is to have a relationship with something on the other side. And so the process of reconnecting with that thing isn't a learning process. It's a it's like a bicycle. <laughs> you know, once you once you do it, you know, you never really lose it ever again. It's just muscle memory. And so maybe that's why, to circle back to the beginning of this episode, I don't know if there's anything that has to happen going forward from this episode. That the remembering process is just mostly about getting on the bicycle and kicking off from the curb and letting itself figure itself letting the process remind your muscles and just thinking about your making whether it's in art or your relationships or your job or your life just thinking about those things as potential inroads to something bigger as a potential threshold between you and that that's enough just like just that seed in the back of your brain is, is enough. And then just let it go. Just go back about your daily life. Um, I don't think anyone who's listened to this episode from beginning to end can ever unhear that in the best way. It is your birthright to make art this way. It's why Picasso famously said, I spent four years learning to paint like Raphael and a lifetime to paint like a child. He wasn't talking about painting art that looks like a child <laughs> he was I don't I don't believe I believe he was talking about painting art in the way that a child paints which is in deep communion with something bigger 
and the work of art is the thing between me and it where we get to touch each other. Oh, this is 2024, y'all. This is the year where things, I believe, start really shifting, not just in my life, not just in your life, but collectively in all of our lives when it comes to making stuff. And it's it's not going to be overnight, but the seed is... The seeds, is, the seeds are starting for so many people in so many industries that the things that we're making aren't just coming from us anymore. You know, like the reason, and I think this is a question that's important to bring up in this episode. I read it in a book years ago and it really stuck with me forever. And the question was, if this, if this, this meaning the planet, the human experience that we're all in. If this isn't what any of us wants, why is this what all of us has? I think that's a question that a lot of people um, are unconsciously asking all over the world right now. <laughs> like this isn't what any of us wants. Like for the most part, maybe there's a few sociopathic ones among us who are like, yes, the world is on fire, you know, great. Like, <laughs> but most of us really like, this is not what we want. Why is this what we've created? I would argue it's because our creative experiences have not been a threshold experience. We have not been using our creative works as an access point to something bigger. And we're starting to do that more and more. And as we do it more and more, the stuff that comes out of us is so much more of what we want. So much more. It's why I get to doodle murals on hospital walls instead of painting still lifes in a university. You know? Ugh. Ugh. And and by the way, that's not a slam on my still life friends who could sit in a university classroom forever. That is, if that is your modality, then then yay. (laughs) The problem isn't the what, the problem is the how. Like if you're in the wrong how, that's the pain, you know? Art as a threshold is about being in communion with the thing that makes you feel alive again. And for me, it was doodles. For me, it was unicorns and rainbows. It always was. I love y'all. Thank you for coming on this podcast journey with me. Thank you for continuing to send messages in the wake of some of these episodes. It means the world to me. I have been getting back to some of them and not all of them, um, but I read them and savor them and deeply reflect on them. Um, I look forward to continuing to post weekly in 2024. Um, In the meantime, keep making stuff and until next time, peace.